You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Job in the Old Testament, uh, Job, we're going to be in, uh, well, I'm going to have you turn to chapters 1 and 2, and then if you can also um, mark chapter 42, we're going to kind of bookend the story of Job today as we are in this series called um, Stories. And I've put together a little slide for you. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, the book of Job, uh, I want to kind of give you an overview real quick. I would encourage you to read this entire uh, book this week if you never have or if it's been a long time since you have. And you might be thinking 42 chapters, that's a lot to read in a week. But The way Job is written, particularly in the middle sections of Job, it's written in uh, the the prose or the poetry form. So it's not a difficult read. It's it's like sitting down to read your favorite book or if you are into poetry, your favorite collection of poems. And so it has that sort of poetic aspect to it in the middle. Um, But but chapters 1 and 2 that we'll take a brief look at today sort of sets the stage for the rest of the book, what's going on, the scenario, the situation. Chapter 3 is Job's lament or his response to the situation that's gone on in his life. Chapters 4 through 27, Job has this discussion with his friends, um, and we would definitely put friends in quotation marks there because they don't prove to be very good friends to Job. But nonetheless, there's this whole section of discussion with him, and then chapters 28 through 31 becomes his search for wisdom and meaning in light of all the things that he's experiencing and even in light of his discussion with his friends Chapters 32 through 37, a man named Elihu comes on the scene and rebukes Job's friends and rebukes Job and begins to proclaim the glory and the goodness of God. And then in chapters 38 through 41, God shows up. God lets Job know, no uncertain terms, who he is. And then chapter 42, you have the conclusion, which we'll look at a little bit today as well. So again, the middle section, really chapters 3 through like 41, are very poetic in nature. So it makes it easy to read. So I would encourage you to read it all this week. Some, because of that literary style, because of it being very poetic, have sought to discredit the story or say that perhaps Job wasn't a real person or he was a real person, but the story is kind of embellished to make us respond a certain way. But the reality is there's three other places in the Bible that Job is mentioned. In Ezekiel 14, twice, in verses 14 and 20, as God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel and speaking of his impending judgment, he says, Noah, Daniel, and Job are the only three who by their own righteousness would be able to withstand my judgment. So he's listed there in Ezekiel 14, 14, and and verse 20 as well, along with Noah and Daniel. In the New Testament, James, in chapter 5, references uh, Job as one who was steadfast through all that occurred in his life. And he writes that as an example to a James audience who was going through uh, trials and tribulations of their own to provide encouragement. So because we see him in other places in the scriptures, we don't look at the story of Job as being something that's embellished or made up or stuff that's added to it to make it seem more extravagant. This is a real person and this is a real situation in his life that he goes through. 
and it's designed to teach us. And so we're going to look at things today a little different sometimes than I normally do, but we want to see three things today out of the story of Job. The first thing we want to see is this, that we learn about God's sovereignty and his providence through the story of Job. We learn about God's sovereignty and providence through the story of Job. What, is, what do those two words mean? Sovereign simply means God's power and his rule over his creation. And his creation is not only the, the created world that is around us, but people, mankind, systems, governments, everything that this world encompasses is God's. And he is sovereign over it. He has power and rule over it. Over the last couple months, as we've seen the situations unfold there in the Ukraine, you might have heard on, on the news people talk about Ukraine being a sovereign nation. It meant they had rule over themselves. That's why the invasion of Russia was such a big deal. And so God shows his sovereignty here, as we'll see in just a moment, in the story of Job. But we also are going to see God's providence. What is God's providence? It's merely his exercising his power and rule, either directly or indirectly. So he has power and rule over all his creation. His providence is his exercising or his working out his rule and power over all creation. And sometimes that's done very directly. An example from the Old Testament would be where he parts the Red Sea to allow them to flee the coming Egyptian army and to escape to uh, the journey that God had set before them. That was a direct movement of his hand. Sometimes he exercises it very indirectly. Last week we saw an example of that in Samson's life where when Samson chose the daughter of the Philistines to take as his wife, God did not directly influence Samson to do that, but the story told us last week God used that to further his kingdom, to further his mission, to further his purpose in Samson's life. So we're going to see both of these things as we go through part of the story of Job today. Let's look at Job 1, verse 6 and 7 to see how this sovereignty and providence plays out. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So we, we get this picture of something going on in the heavenlies that this group, the sons of God and Satan come before the Lord. Now, the sons of God here is a, a phrase that is meant to convey that these were angelic beings and the fact that Satan is with them may or may not mean that they were fallen angels. It could simply be God's angels that he created that had not fallen, but Satan was mixing and mingling in with them in this moment. The scripture doesn't tell us exactly, but there's, rever there's reference here that the sons of God here means angelic beings. Back in Genesis chapter 6, it says, as the earth was becoming increasingly, increasingly corrupted and wicked, that the sons of God began to marry with the daughters of men. And it's a story that teaches us about that there were these fallen angels who began to corrupt even the race of mankind. Now, I know that opens up a whole other host of questions. 
And one of these third Thursday theologies, maybe either in June or July, we're going to touch on angels and demons. So we'll get to those questions on that third Thursday on theology, okay? So if you want to know those questions or the answers, it come to that. But here, the sons of God reference angelic beings. That does not mean everywhere we see that phrase, that's what it references. In Romans 8, for example, Paul writes, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Clearly in that context, speaking to human beings. But here, it is an angelic gathering before the Lord. And it says, not only are the sons of God there, but Satan. Now, understand, Satan as a proper name for that fallen angel evolved over time. Most all your translations, I'm assuming, have Satan with the capital S, and it's, it's presented to us as it's his name. In the Hebrew, it's actually a small s, and it's actually two words, the Satan. It was over time that the Satan began to be evolved in the writings of the biblical understanding to be a proper name for him. But here it is, the Satan. Why is it the Satan? Because it's described. Does and that word means adversary, accuser, or oppressor. So what the what the story is telling us here is these angelic beings and the adversary, the accuser, the opposer, the oppressor came before the Lord in this moment. And they came to present themselves. This is where we get the first piece of God's sovereignty. They came to present themselves before the Lord. It's a phrase that means, if you've ever seen this or maybe even participated in your life, it it would be this uh, similar fashion where people in the military would come to present themselves before their superior for inspection or to show a particular skill that they've learned or something along those lines. It's written in such a way that they are coming, even the Satan, before their superior. That's important because as we go through here today, one of the things I'm going to hammer home is we don't look at the story of Job nor any other story in the scriptures that speak of our enemy and put him and God on even terms. He is under God's authority. Just as everything and everyone is under God's authority. But they come to present themselves. Look at verses 9 and 10. Satan has answered that he's been walking up and down on the earth. And, verse, and Job is, is brought up by the Lord in verse 8. The, Have you considered my servant Job? And he's blameless and upright. And look at what the answer is there in verses 9 and 10. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and, you, and his possessions have increased in the lands. How is that God's sovereignty and providence? Well, simply this. One, God had placed a hedge, sometimes it's called a hedge of protection, around Job. Now, we we understand what a hedge is. If you think about hedge rows, or um, yesterday we had a a great group of people here after the men's breakfast that worked outside, had some women's breakfast to help us. And uh, one of the tasks that we did was we had them cutting these shrubs on this side of the church and over here. Uh, and we've still got more to do. There'll be another work day in, to come. 
But if you, could, if you saw what those shrubs looked like over there, and if you could imagine them being one right next to another, that would be a definite hedge of protection. Nothing's getting in, nothing's getting out. I thought about a baby gate. You put up a baby gate, right? Because you want to prevent danger from happening, you, whether it's a, a, a pet that maybe is too aggressive or a set of stairs that you don't want the baby to get near, but you put up this hedge so that the child can't get to that dangerous issue or the danger can't get to them, but you're also keeping something very precious and treasured in. And that's what it meant for God to have put this hedge around Job. He was keeping things from harming him, but he was doing it because he treasured Job. We also see his, his sovereignty and his providence in that second statement. Satan says, you, God, have blessed the work of his hands. That is a statement that means that God had taken what Job had done with the work of his hands and had multiplied it. Now, there's two really important pieces to pull out of this. One is that God increases, God gives the multiplication. But two, we're expected to work. We're expected to work. We don't work for our salvation. We don't work to make God love us anymore. But God expects his people to do something. To be active, to be active in his mission, to be active in his journey, uh, in our journeys of faith, to be active in bringing his glory to this, to this world. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, as a New Testament example, Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica. And in this section in chapter 3, he's writing about people within the church, a very important piece. People within the church who are lazy and idle and just busybodies, meaning they look really busy, but they're not really getting anything accomplished. One of my favorite TV shows, for better or for worse, was Seinfeld. And if any of you are Seinfeld fans, there's a character named George Costanza on there. And he gets the bright idea one episode that if he can just look really busy, he doesn't have to do anything because everybody will think he's really busy. And so he would encounter people, got a lot to do today, you know, and they'd all leave him alone and then he'd go take a nap somewhere. It's kind of who Paul's describing in 2 Thessalonians 3. Except in 2 Thessalonians 3, he's talking about those within the church community. And he makes this statement in verse 10, if anyone's willing to work or not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, again, side, side tangent here. But Paul's not putting that forth as some sort of legal law to combat all of society. He's talking specifically within the church. God's people aren't willing to work. They're not going to take part in the blessing. And so God had done this with Job in his providence and his sovereignty. He had blessed Job's work and he had prospered him. And so Satan takes this, all of this and comes before the Lord and says, listen. This is the only reason he loves you. Take all his stuff away. Take his life. He won't love you anymore. He tries to incite God to do his work. And look at what God says there in Job 1.12. And then we're also going to look at 2.6 because it's a very similar statement. Job 1.12. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has, meaning all material possessions, family, everything else, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There in 2.6, Satan comes back and this scene plays again. And he, he, incites, he tries to incite God again. And God says to him in verse 6, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Now Job himself is in Satan's hand. Only spare his life. How does this show sovereignty and providence? Because God puts limits on what the enemy can do. First example, you take everything he has. You can wipe away any of it that you want to. Do whatever you want to with it, but don't touch him at all. Second scenario, okay, well, you, you, you think if, if he's physically afflicted, he'll curse me? Okay, he's in your hands, but don't kill him. God displays his sovereignty and his providence over his creation by limiting what the enemy can do in Job's life in these two situations. Now, the question arises, does Satan always have to ask or receive God's permission to do what he wants to do? And the answer is we really aren't sure if it's 100% of the time or not. Let me explain that for just a moment. We do see elsewhere, for example, in Luke 22, uh, Peter's, uh, Peter and Jesus are together, and Jesus says to him in verse 31, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith would not fail. So it's another moment in Scripture where we see Satan having to ask for permission to do something against God's people. But then Peter writes in 1 Peter, 5, uh, 1 Peter 1, 5, 8, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom to devour. And there's nothing in Peter's writings there in the context or the language that, that points us at all to the devil having to ask for every step and every person that he's seeking to devour. So the scripture is just not 100% clear whether he always has to ask or whether he has some uh, seemingly independent movement. But what the scripture is clear upon, not only here in Job, but in every other piece of scripture is this. No matter whether he's asking or no matter whether he's moving independently, God's still in control. God is still working. God is still achieving his goal and his purpose. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. All things means all things, good things, bad things, and everything in between things. That God is working for those who love him. So we see God's sovereignty. We see his providence. Secondly, here from Job, we learn about the enemy's schemes against us. The enemy's schemes always centers around accusation. Lies. Jesus said in John 8, 44, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus cannot be any more clear as to what the enemy seeks to do to us. Yes, he comes to steal. Yes, he comes to kill. Yes, he comes to destroy. But it centers around his accusations and his lies in our lives. In Revelation 12, as John sees this incredible vision of what's going on in, in the heavenlies, he calls him the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before God. So we have in Job what kind of presents itself as maybe this once or twice kind of occurrence. But then John tells us in Revelation, oh, no, 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 no. He does this day and night. You say, how's, how's he doing it? 
Well, he's probably doing something like this. God, are you really sure you want to do anything for that old rascal, Steve Rose? Don't you know what he's done? Don't you know what he struggles with? Don't you know what, what still bothers him in his life? You sure you really want to do anything for Denny Phillips, for Gary Smith? You sure? And God, on behalf of his son, Jesus Christ, repeatedly meets those accusations with, absolutely I do, because they're my children. But he accuses before God day and night. He accuses us. He lies to us. He's indirectly accusing Job here of following God solely for the material possessions and things that he has in his life for his blessings. And in a sense, when he asks God to incite violence against Job, he's accusing God as well. How is he accusing him? He's accusing God and saying, you think you're all powerful? You think you're all knowing? Why don't you do something to Job and see what happens? He's accusing him. And so what he does is he lies and he accuses. And here, particularly in the story of Job, he uses both people and natural occurrences in his attack on Job. In the first chapter, he uses people. The, the Sabaeans are, are mentioned. The Chaldeans are mentioned as those who come and kill and take away. Uh, the fire of God from heaven is mentioned in this chapter 1, which generally is a euphemism for lightning. A great wind, which is understood kind of like a tornado-type wind, comes in and takes everything out. So he uses both people and natural occurrences in his attack. But... It's important for us to understand that that does not mean that he has all control over, over nature. Only that which God has allowed him to have. In the rest of the book of Job, when God begins to speak to, uh, to Job, he talks about nature. And I, I just want to read a couple of examples from you. Job 38, 22 and 23. He says to Job, have you entered the storehouses of snow? Have you seen the storehouses of hell, which I reserve for the time of trouble, for the day of the battle and the day of war? In verse 34 and 35, he says this, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning, that they may go, and you say to them, Here we are? When he, when he combats Job and Job's understanding, part of what he does in that section in those chapters is he talks about his control over nature. And so what it helps us to understand is that it may or may not be something Satan's had permission to, to have or to use. It may simply be God being in control of what goes on around us. Now, I know scientifically we can talk about warm air meets cold air and it, front meets this and front meets that and this all... God has set up all that, folks. It is not independent of his sovereignty. It is not in, independent of his providence. And we read that the enemy even attacks by his own limited power. In that situation in chapter 2, he said, go and, and touch him, but don't kill him. And it says in chapter 2, verse 7, that the enemy did touch him. And he began to have sores and boils all over his skin, but he was not able to kill him. But in all of this, understand he is still limited. In all of this, the first point, which was why I led with the first point, remains. God is sovereign and providential over all things, even including the enemy. He may be called in places the prince or the ruler of this world, but Daniel then reminds us that the Lord Most High rules all the kingdoms of men. 
He may at times have access to nature, but it is Jesus who commands the winds and the waves at the snap of a finger. He may accuse and seek to deceive us, but it is Jesus who gives us his truth through the power of the Holy Spirit that we may gird ourselves up, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, and deflect his lies, his arrows. He may use the fallen angels to do his bidding, bidding, but it is Jesus who has authority over them, and it is Jesus who gives his people authority over them, according to the scriptures. He may seek to blind the hearts and the, man's, and the minds of mankind, but it is Jesus who opens their eyes and opens their hearts. It is the Holy Spirit who leads them to God. He may seek to attack and steal and kill and destroy, but it is Jesus who has come to give life and give it abundantly. The enemy is not to be feared. We'll get to that more in a moment. The third thing we listen, or the third thing we learn, is that we learn what God required here in the story of Job for him to receive the blessing. Look at Job 42, verses 7 through 10. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, meaning what he had spoken from chapters 38 to 41, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And then verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Did you notice how he talked about Job there? It's the same way he talked about him in chapters 1 and 2, although we didn't read it specifically, he said, my servant, Job. He's, he's, he's detailing the relationship that Job has with God. One of a servant, one who will do what he says. And he says to these wicked, wicked friends who had given horrible, horrible advice and had not only just given horrible advice, but had really given advice that stole the glory of God, he says to them, go and do this, but I'm going to have Job pray for you. And I'll accept his prayer, or I'll accept your suffering or your sacrifices when he prays for you. Now, this is what I'm not saying, or rather, this is what the scripture is not saying. It's not saying that God will always bless you materially or family-wise like he does Job in this instant. Blessings come to us in different ways, at different times, in different quantities, in different measure, but they're all blessings. So this is not to be seen as some kind of a prayer, some kind of a magic formula. Oh, if I just do this, then what's going to happen to me is the same thing that happens to Job through the rest of chapter 42. And if you read in the rest of chapter 42, he gets everything back double. That's not what the Scripture is teaching us here. The Scripture is teaching us that Job's restoration was not found in that he got everything back double. 
Job's restoration was not found that God produced in his life an outpouring of material possessions to more than make up for what he had lost. Job's restoration happened because of two things. One, in the very first part of chapter 42 that we didn't read, but I encourage you to, verses 1 through 6, when God gets done speaking, Job repents. The first part of his restoration was that when God's truth hit him square in the nose, he said, oh, I get it now. (laughs) All that stuff that I thought was wisdom, all that stuff that I thought I knew, all that stuff that I thought I knew and how you worked, I see now just how meaningless that was. And he repents. And then after he repents, his restoration comes when he forgives. Because make no doubt about it, Job's prayer for his friends had to be a prayer of forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus picks up on this in Matthew 6 when he teaches about the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15 says, Forgive others as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. If you choose not to, your heavenly Father will withhold forgiveness from you. See, when you and I come to an understanding of who God is... I mean a real understanding of who God is. This isn't even in my notes, okay? We're just, we're, we're going to go here for a minute. When we really understand who he is and his power and his sovereignty and his providence and his command over all things and his willingness to work things out in our lives in ways that we can't see and his love and his grace and his mercy, when you really get that, how can you withhold that from anybody else? My fear, my concern is that we would, we would be unlike Job and say, but God, you don't know how much they hurt me. You don't know all the nasty things they said about me. You don't know the pain, the sleepless nights, all, the, all that's been pulled from me. Job does none of that. Why? Because in his repentance, he looked at God and said, oh, I get it now. You had not given me anything that I deserved, God. You had merely given me everything so that I would glorify you. And he offers up a prayer of forgiveness for his people and it, or for his friends. And it's in that prayer that his restoration comes. Because notice what it said there in verse 10 again. It says that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Job did not get the goods up front. When he was obedient to what God was calling him to do. He restored Job in that moment. And that restoration had nothing to do with material possessions. It was the restoration of Job's relationship with God Almighty. Why? Because God is about his glory. The three friends had not only given bad advice, but they'd given advice that detracted from the glory of God. And God is about his glory. Now, of any human being, if we would make that statement, our right response would be, how can someone be so arrogant as to demand glory? And of any human being, that would be the right response. But of God, it is the perfect response. 
that yes, he does things for your benefit, and yes, he does things for my benefit, and yes, he does things to improve our lives and improve his creation and, and show his hand and show himself to be greatness, but he does that for his glory. Solely, purely, profoundly, he wants to receive glory from what he has done. And what he warned Israel through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 48 was, I give my glory to no one. I share my glory with no one. What he was telling them through the prophet Isaiah was, what I'm about to do, although you'll benefit from it, it's for my glory. In many ways, what the story of Job does for us as it sets forth sovereignty and providence, as it sets forth the understanding of our enemy's schemes, and ultimately as it sets forth how Job is restored here, in many ways, this sets the scene for Jesus. The scriptures all point to Jesus. Sometimes we got to dig a little. Sometimes we got to work through the hard parts of scripture, but it all points to Jesus. Like Job, Jesus lost everything when he came to this earth. That's what the scriptures tell us. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul also wrote in Philippians 2, verse 7, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus lost everything by leaving the glories of heaven to come here for you and for me. Like Job, Jesus had his friends and his family abandon him. Job said in, 19, in chapter 19, 14, my relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. John writes in his gospel in chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers, speaking of Jesus, believed in him. And surely we know his best friends, the disciples, they failed him at the most critical moment. Like Job, Jesus became a servant who would become a mediator. Job gets to that point where God asks him to do something that would seem very unfair. Pray for these friends. Pray for these people who've tried to lead you down the wrong path, who've brought you all this pain. Pray for them. But unlike Job, Jesus mediated not for friends but for enemies. Romans 5.10, and I'm reading it out of the New Living, just for crystal clarity. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. See, for those who are not found in Jesus in this moment, it's not just that you just don't know God. You're his enemy. For, for young six-year-old Steve Rose, who was racked with conviction at, the, at the, the back of First Baptist Church Lawrenceburg, who didn't understand a, a lick of theology yet, but understood that I was a, a sinful person who was in need of a Savior, I was God's enemy. You might say, oh, how could a six-year-old be God's enemy? Because I was racked with sin. It was my master. And without God's intervention, it would have ruined my life. And finally, like Job, Jesus will one day see the full restoration of God's plan. Job, after his mediation, had his relationship with God restored. 
Now, Jesus doesn't need a relationship with God restored, but he will see a full restoration of the outworkings of the kingdom of God one day because he was faithful like Job was. And just get a glimpse for this for just a moment. Going back to John's vision in Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11. Mm. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is no joke, people. Friends and family, co-workers, fellow students, people who you speak so admirably of and care for, if they are not found right with Jesus Christ, that is going to be a horrific day. And sometimes we say things like, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I do wish he would come quickly. But we say it so flippantly as if not to understand for many people on that day, they would be praying, oh, could you just wait one minute longer? Could you just hold off for 30 seconds, Jesus, so I can do what I've been putting off And his answer will be no. Why? Because he is sovereign. And he is providential. And he's defeated the enemy. And he's given us the opportunity already now to come into his kingdom. But they have to know before they can say yes. Job teaches us a lot. Man, it teaches us a lot. But the greatest thing it teaches us is that it points to Jesus who's coming back as a king. And he's going to come back and he's going to judge righteously and fairly. And he's going to come back to see the glory of God revealed. If you count yourself among those who are anxiously waiting, count yourself blessed. But at the same time, figure out who the friends are in your life who are detracting away from God's glory. Pray for them. Forgive them. Speak to them. Be about his kingdom. Be about his purpose. 
Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.